There was a, uh, a traveler uh, traveling through uh, West Texas and up through the panhandle of Oklahoma, and he stopped uh, to grab a soda or a pop, I guess, in, in that area of the uh, world, and, and uh, just kind of stretch his legs, and uh, he saw an old country store, so he pulled over, and uh, as he was walking into the store, there on the porch was a, a rope that was hanging down, and uh, to the right of that rope was a sign that said, Weather Forecaster. Uh, he thought that was interesting. He went in, uh, grabbed the things that he needed to grab from the, uh, from the, um, uh, the, the store, and as he was paying, the old man that was helping him out, uh, I know I've got a picture of this um, that's going to come up on the, uh, on the internet there. But anyway, the, the, the guy was checking him out, and, and so the, the traveler said, well, what's, the, what's this rope all about? What's the rope outside for? He goes, well, that's our weather forecasting rope. He says, really? Uh, and, and it predicts the weather? He goes, oh, absolutely. He goes, well, how does it work? Well, he says, well, if it's swinging back and forth, that means it's windy. If it's wet, that means it's raining. If it's frozen stiff, that means it's going to be cold weather. And if it's gone, tornado. It was 1988. I was in Bible college in San Jose, and a lot of my peers at the college were all abuzz. It was supposed to be the year that Jesus was going to come back. There had been a book that had been authored uh, called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Experts watched the signs that they felt so sure of. People sold their homes. They liquidated their assets. And they waited. The author of the book changed his calculations and and determined, well, he was off by one year. My dad humorously suggested that he writes a second book called 89 Reasons that the Rapture Will Happen in 1989, the 89th reason being that it didn't happen in 1988. If you do a quick internet search, you will find the following list of times where Christians predicted the rapture, or the second coming of Christ, or the end of the world. Ready? Here we go. Buckle up. During the first thousand years of Christianity, it was predicted to happen in the year 70, 365, sometime before 400, 500, April 6th, 793, 800, between 799 and 806, 847, somewhere between 992 and 995, and the year 1000. Some of those predictions were uh, based on the uprising of the Jews against Rome, and some were actually based on the dimensions of Noah's Ark, believe it or not. Uh, From the 11th to the 15th centuries, it was predicted to happen in the years uh, 1033, anywhere from 1200 to 1260, 1284, 1290, 1335, anywhere between 1346 and 1351, anywhere between 1366 and 1370, and 1378. Some of those were were, uh, calculated by using the years 666 after the rise of Islam, and also just the fact that the Black Death had come upon Europe. From the 16th century, we have 1504, February 1st, 1524, February 20th, 1524, anywhere between 1524 and 1526, May 27th, uh, 1528, October 19th at 8 a.m. in 1533. I I don't know how they got that one to the precise hour. April 1534, uh, 1555, 1585, 
1600, and that was all based on a, a major London flood, the planetary alignments, and calculating 1260 years after the Council of Nicaea. By the way, it was Martin Luther, yeah, the, the great Martin Luther, who said it was going to happen by the year 1600. From the 17th century, February 1st, 1624, this was the same group that had predicted it 100 years before that. 1648, from a guy who claimed to actually be the Messiah. 1651, from a manuscript that had predicted the rise of Islam. 1654, based on a supernova that was seen in the sky. 1656, from Christopher Columbus's writing back in 1501. Uh, 1655 to 1657, 1658, again from Christopher Columbus's writings in, in an awkward recant of his first prediction. 1660, because, of course, the Antichrist had appeared, of course, in the year 456. And, of course, then the year 1666. Look at the last three digits. <laughs> from this 18th century, 1705 to 1708, 1716, April 5th, 1719, uh, because we were going to be destroyed by a comet. 1700 to 1734, any time during that point. October 16th, 1736, from yet another comet. 1736, this would be the third wrong prediction from the same guy. 1757, May 19, 1780, 1789, 1792, 1794, November 19, 1795, from the 18th century. Anywhere between seven, uh, um, oh, from, I already said that. From the 19th century, 1805, 1806, 1814, 1836, 1843, 1844, 1847, 1862, 1863, 1873, 1874, 1881, 1890. From the 20th century, ready for the crazy? There are a list of 64 individual dates in the 20th century, taught by over 80 individuals or groups. And now in the 21st century, people are showing up on the list who have had more than half a dozen different predictions, none of which have come true. Folks, stop it. Just stop, will you? I, I, I'm thinking that maybe we really don't have a clue as to when the end of the world will occur. Now, I know it sounds like I'm being cynical, but please understand. I'm only cynical when it comes to trying to figure out when it's going to happen. I'm not cynical at all that it will happen because we are promised in God's word that it will happen. We can take that to the bank. I just think twice about trying to figure out exactly when it will be. What should our attitude be in light of the fact that the Bible does say Jesus is going to return one day? Now, I get it. We're all fascinated by the end of the world. I'm fascinated by a lot of things, and I'm also terrified by those things that I'm fascinated by. Uh, sharks, for example, uh, tornadoes, uh, lightning, uh, werewolves. Uh, those, those things fascinate me. Those things terrify me. And, and I have encountered many believers who have some anxiety over the end of the world and how it's going to happen. That's why people say, can we please study the book of Revelation? Because they think that if they know the ending uh, of the book... And all of the details, it's kind of like me getting online uh, before I watch a scary movie to see where all the jump scares are so that I can actually enjoy the movie. Uh, they want to know how all these details are going to happen so that they're not as anxious. Folks, 2,000 years ago, 
believers in Jesus Christ saw things in a completely different lens. Read the New Testament. You will see that the early church, including Paul, expected Jesus to come back at any time in their generation. They thought that those who had put their faith in Jesus when he was alive would one day see him come back. Their view of the second coming was filled with hopeful expectation. And part of the image of God, the imago Dei that they would demonstrate to their culture, to their world, uh, was all about this hope that this was not the end-all be-all, that one day Jesus was going to take us to a better place. For them, the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy about the coming kingdom could not happen soon enough. It was nothing to fear. It was actually something to really look forward to. And so that's why um, they they would say Maranatha, which meant uh, come, Lord, Uh, They they wanted it to happen. They were going to see their Lord again. The sufferings that they were enduring in the world would soon be over. Now, on the flip side of of those who were anticipating it and saying, yes, Lord, please come, let's end this thing, uh, there are those people who really are not looking forward to it, not because they're afraid of it, but because, well, uh, it just hasn't happened, and they've put it out of their mind. Um, to them, they're, they're not anticipating it to happen at all in their lifetime. Our societies become used to living without the idea of Jesus' return, and so we usually don't think about it, and shame on us, we rarely preach about it. Until something like the year 2012 shows up, and the Mayans say that the end of the world is going to come. Then all of a sudden, now we put all of our stock in, in the fact that the Mayans have said that 2012 is going to be the end of the world. And it puts a fire under God's people at that point. Today, we're going to look at a passage that was written at a time when Christians really did believe that Jesus could come back at any time. Um, what was written by John in Revelations, all of those debated interpretations, they didn't have that. All they had, all they knew about the end of the age was what Jesus had said in his lifetime and what Paul would teach them as well. That one day Jesus was going to come back and take us to our eternal home and that nobody knew the day or the hour. But here's the problem. When you anticipate that this is going to happen at any time, when you're sure that it's going to happen within your lifetime, well, then what about all of those people that you love who have put their faith in Jesus who are now dying, who, who also expected to see Jesus in their lifetime, but now they are no longer. They, they, are, they are dead. They are buried. They are gone. It shocked some of the believers who were still alive. They expected everybody to stay alive and to be alive when Jesus came back. And so they wondered. They were concerned uh, over the loss of their loved ones. They, they were worried that somehow their, their departed loved ones would somehow miss out on Jesus' return. And so they had a fear, not that Jesus was going to come back, but they had a fear that some people were going to miss it. But remember our key verse in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, where Paul commends this church for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. It is this steadfastness of hope, this hope that Paul brings up and reminds them of to allay their fears and concerns about all of that. So I I want to pick it up in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, beginning with verse 13, where Paul writes to the believers, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep 
or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And again, fallen asleep is actually a metaphor for dying. Uh, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Simply put, Paul tells them that when Jesus comes back, those who had died are not going to miss out on the celebration. Those who are alive, and it sounds like he is still expecting to be alive when Jesus comes back. He says those of us who are still left here on the earth, he says that we're not going to have any advantage over those who have died. As Jesus has been resurrected into a new life, so all will be resurrected, even those who have died. Christians who had died would be reunited with their loved ones, with their friends, with the Lord, and they would share in the celebration and joy as Jesus would bring his church to be with him. And so this was to be an encouragement. In verse 18, he says that. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Today, whenever the second coming makes the news, sometimes uh, there are people, like I said, who have fears and concerns. They're, they're not necessarily encouraged. I, I remember when I heard that 1988 prediction, I, I was a little unsettled. I was still 20 years old. I, I had my whole life in front of me, and, and I wasn't sure if I wanted Jesus to come back so soon or not. Uh, there, was, there was a little bit of discouragement and anxiety, not encouragement. Um, but our, our concern then are not necessarily for those who pass away, because we, we're used to the idea now that they are with the Lord. As Paul says, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. So we're okay with them. But we now wonder, how should we live? How how should this affect our attitude and our actions when we begin to get anxious about the end of our life or the end of the world? What kind of encouragement can we take from what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 4? What does the steadfastness of hope mean for us? One of my very favorite sayings of the Apostle Paul is, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Often at funerals, we we focus in on the loss. The person lost their lives. We have lost a loved one. And, And yet the Bible says that for the believer, when you get to the end of your life, that's actually gain. It's not loss at all. Well, one of Paul's greatest statements of faith is for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. It shows that whether it's the end of the world or the end of his life, neither really truly mattered to him. It was not a matter of being worried about that or anxious because both of those things would mean a better existence because of the hope that we've been given by Jesus' resurrection. Back in 1992... In Christianity Today, there was a, an article, an interview with Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa. He was asked about his hope for his country, and he replied, I am always hopeful. A Christian is a prisoner of hope. 
What could have looked more hopeless than Good Friday? There is no situation from which God cannot extract good, evil, death, oppression, injustice. These can never again have the last word, despite all appearances to the contrary. I might add to that list COVID-19. There is nothing that can have the last word ever again. Even though it looks like maybe it's winning, it cannot have the last word. I love that phrase. It's a pri- we're prisoners of hope. That means we cannot escape the hope that Jesus Christ has given to us. Uh, six or seven years ago, at a funeral here at the church, I, I heard Pastor Chris Blair give this illustration. I- I've never forgotten it. It's a, it's a beautiful illustration. There was a woman who was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and, and, and she had requested her pastor to come and see her to help her get her affairs in order before she passed away. And as she was telling him what uh, songs she wanted at her memorial service and what passages of Scripture, she said, and, and by the way, when you bury me, I want to have a fork in my hand. The pastor asked, well, why? What's, what's going on with a fork in your hand? And, and, and she said, well... Listen, I I remember visiting my grandma a long, long time ago. And after a good home-cooked meal, she would come and she would take away all of the the, the dishes. But she'd say, but keep your fork because the best is yet to come. And I knew that there was going to be put before me, the the old lady said, a, 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 a marvelous, wonderful dessert that would be a treat. So she goes, I know that I've had a wonderful life here on earth, but I know that the best is yet to come. So I want to be buried with a fork because the best is yet to come. The, the best is yet to come for us because we are prisoners of hope. Now, I don't know if we're going to be the ones who are left alive when Jesus comes back. I don't know if we're going to pass away before Jesus comes back because it could happen at any time. Some of us will be buried with our forks. Some of us will be having those forks in our hand when Jesus shows up. So how should we live with that fork in our hand? What should that mean? What should that look like, this this steadfastness of hope? You you, you know, when I I get on a plane, I tend to tune out the the lady that starts telling me all about the safety features because I've been on a plane so many times. It's become kind of commonplace, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just talking to George McCart today, and I, I, was, uh, I was talking about when I was coming back from Tanzania five or six years ago, and, and I thought that I had a, this really good plan to, to stop jet lag. I was going to stay up all night, all night before I got on the plane, so that when I got on the plane, I could actually sleep on the plane because I have a hard time sleeping, sitting up anyway. I figured I'm just going to stay up all night, and then when I'm on the plane, I'll sleep for those 11 hours on that flight. It didn't work. I could not sleep a a wink on that flight. And so it turns out that by the time I got into Seattle and went through the the whole customs, I I had been up for over a day and a half with no sleep whatsoever. I got on the little puddle jumper to come down here to Redmond, and as I did, uh, we were still there. The, the lady had not started to, to give us all the safety features yet. And, and I just kind of put my head up against the bulwark. Literally, the next thing I remember is they were saying, ladies and gentlemen, we are now making our descent into Redmond. 
that means I had really slept through the instructions. Like, like I, I did not even, I'm sure I was snoring while this lady was telling us about all the safety features on the plane. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't listen to those things anymore. They're, they're not of concern to me because I've heard it so many times. It doesn't mean that what she's saying isn't vital. It means that there are some really important things. Now, I believe that we have kind of tuned out the return of Jesus so often, so, so much, that we don't pay attention. So let me encourage you today, put down your magazine, turn off your cell phone, wake up, and let's give Paul our full undivided attention because this is what the Lord wants us to know today. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And again, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Um, uh, yeah. So, with the steadfast love, uh, hope that we have in Jesus, Paul tells us that there's two ways of being prepared. Number one... We need to be, remember the reality of the return. Remember the reality of the return. Now, while you might hear a concept or two whenever I preach or Ethan preaches or Andy preaches, um, most things that are said upon the pulpit are just reminders that you, you already know a lot of the things that we talk about. So these are just reminders, and, and that's ultimately what Paul is saying, is I'm reminding you of what I have already taught you. I have recently been convicted by God's Spirit that we might do well in speaking more often about the return of Christ from, from the pulpit. I think we've all become a little bit complacent and have rested our heads against the bulwark thinking, eh, I, I, I guess I know this. And we forget sometimes in our everyday lives that Jesus could come back at any time. We've been lulled into a false sense of peace and safety, as Paul writes here in chapter 5. As, as if things are always going to go as they have always gone. On a practical level, we've kind of forgotten that this world is not our home. That we're only passing through. And that our homecoming could be at any day, at any moment. Being reminded of the idea that Jesus could come back at any time will keep us alert. Will keep us alert. Back in 1976, it was the bicentennial of our country, and our, our block, our neighborhood, we would throw a block party to end all block parties on the 4th of July. 
um, right in front of our house. We were in the middle of the, of the street. We, we blocked off traffic, and the, we allowed the teenage boys of the neighborhood to do all of the fireworks that year. And this is back in the 70s when there's a lot of things legal that are not legal anymore. And the, these fountains that they would be putting up sometimes got 20, 30 feet high in the air sometimes. I mean, just shooting straight up or, or the, the fountains that were going. And I remember my mom being very, very alert because it was a dry season there in Fresno, California. And, and we had a big tree in our front yard, and she just saw, she just could picture in her mind that some of the, the fireworks were going to hit our tree and it was going to just burst into flame. So she literally had my older sister and I at the ready with a water hose. We were alert for anything to happen. I'll remember that to my dying day, I believe. Just because we were so on our toes knowing that this was going to happen. We just knew that some of those sparks were going to ignite the tree and we were ready to go. Paul says we need to be alert. He, He uses the same metaphor that Jesus did in his teaching about a a thief coming at night suddenly without warning. Paul speaks of those who live in darkness. They're the ones that are not anticipating anybody breaking in and and coming in suddenly. Those who remember the reality of the return will be encouraged in times like we live in today when things seem so uncertain. And you wonder, is this the last times? I don't know. I don't know. But the steadfast hope that we have in Jesus will allow us to stand firm, to have faith, to look forward to a time when all of this will fade into glory as we await the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to remember the reality of the return. I I love alliteration. Remember the reality of the return. Secondly, we need to walk in the way of righteousness. I'm I'm kidding. I just, you know, I was trying to think of a W there. But walk in the way of righteousness. Paul uses the the, the term self-controlled twice in chapter 5, in in the 11 verses that we read. Two times. Because for Paul, the reality of the return mandated that we would walk in the way of the Lord in self-control. Self-control. That that we would actually make the decisions on how we will respond. What we will do. How we will reach out in a labor of love. How we will have that work of faith. It's dependent upon our decision to walk in the way of righteousness. I love the bumper sticker that I once saw that said, Jesus is coming soon. Look busy. Look busy. Why? Well, because uh, as Paul adopts this illustration of being children of the light, children of the day, as opposed to those who sleep and carouse at night, we are reminded of other passages in God's Word that speak of the difference between light and darkness. And it really is about the way we are living. Ephesians chapter 5, for example, Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light, for the fruit of the light, that means that the, the things that we do, the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, 
rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Living in the light, first of all, means that you're willing to let your struggles and sins be exposed in order for the Lord to bring about the necessary cleanup or the surgical procedure that needs to happen to cut those malignant parts out of your life. But it also means that you then now walk in the the example that Jesus Christ has given to us, that we become more and more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit does a work in our life. Living in the light means that we stay on the path more and more, the path that the Master has set for us as an example as we serve other people as we prioritize prayer and worship on an everyday basis, as we demonstrate God's holiness and righteousness. In this way, then, being self-controlled is really being spirit-controlled, but in a way that eventually becomes part of you. It, it just is, it becomes natural. Though it's not part of your, spirit, uh, your, your sinful nature, it becomes part of your redeemed nature because... God is making you into the image of Jesus. It's the fruit of the work of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is born out of you. And so spirit control becomes, over time, self-control. And that's why that's one of the fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians. Check out a parable that Jesus told as recorded in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said, be dressed. Be dressed, ready for service. Keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes, the master comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, the master, he will dress himself to serve, will have them, the servants, recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It, is, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. In other parables, Jesus would, would equate being ready as being uh, active in doing what the master would want them to do, to take care of the vineyard, for example, in one parable, or to take care of the household in another. You know, I always thought it would be so embarrassing for Jesus to come back when I'm in the middle of a sin. You know, it's like, uh-oh. That actually, when I was growing up, weighed very heavily on my mind. Now, I, I wasn't worried about my salvation, but, but I was worried about being embarrassed. Now, now I realize now that it's not necessarily a bad thing to be brought to mind, uh, for my sin to be brought to mind, that the fact that Jesus could come back at any time when I have a choice to fall to temptation or to make the choice to resist the devil's schemes. See, Paul hints at the armor of God here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 8 it says, since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. That should sound familiar to many of you. Back in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the armor of God. And that would include a breastplate and the uh, salvation a helmet. And again in Romans chapter 13, Paul says, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, which would be shades of what he's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness 
and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We have to remember the reality of the return, and we need to walk in the way of righteousness, folks. Living in the light means that our behavior changes as we guard against the temptation to follow the path of our sinful nature. So I want to be anticipating the return of Jesus every day, knowing that he could come back today, right now. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back at any time. I want to be walking in that way more and more so that when he does come back, when he does come back and ends this world and recreates it into his design, and we're taking we are taken to our heavenly home. I want to be doing what God has called me to do. That's ultimately what discipleship is all about. That's ultimately what reflecting the imago Dei, the image of God, is all about. As we imitate Jesus, and then we turn around and serve as an example for others to do the same. Our world needs hope right now, church. And we've got that hope. We need to be walking in that hope. We need to be prisoners of hope so that we will know that Jesus has something for us on the other side of all of this, and it can happen at any day. Right now, I'd invite the worship team to come on up. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you prepared? I was reminded about this cute little story by uh, Mac McIntosh uh, at, at a funeral he recently preached at. He talked about a, a young preacher who had memorized his sermon, And he got to a point where he had read, Behold, I come quickly. And he stumbled because he'd forgotten the next words that he was supposed to say. He remembered in seminary that he was supposed to, if you ever got stuck, that you were supposed to just repeat what you just said and it'll come back to you. So he says, Behold, I come quickly. But it didn't happen. It didn't work. The words were not coming to him. So he decided to say one more time, Behold, I come quickly. So fervently that he leaned heavily on the pulpit. And just like this, the pulpit moved. And he fell into the lap of a lady in the front row. He was appalled. He, he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He apologized up and down. She said, Oh, don't worry. You warned me three times. You warned me three times. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? He, he tells us more than three times that he will one day come back to take us to be where he is. It means that we don't have to be unsettled about that. It, it means that we don't have to grieve like the rest of the world when our loved ones in Jesus pass away because they share our hope. Our hope is, insecure, is secure in the promises of God Jesus said he was going to go away to prepare a place for us so that one day we can be where he is. Let me just ask you this before we close in a song and a prayer. If Jesus thinks it's important to prepare, I believe that we should as well. 